let's get started on a topic that I do, uh, this particular topic I do all over, uh, I've, I've actually done it all over the world. Uh, it's one of the primary topics that I like to talk about. It's relate to spiritual formation. Uh, we call it self-counsel. I'll define it for you here in a minute. Uh, we've got about 45 minutes just because of the plane. Uh, so when I'm done, somebody's going to come up. I'm going to grab a few things and have to duck out the back door so we can make our flight. Uh, my family will be here and join me here in a few minutes. So you're going to... Uh, I don't have quite an hour. We'll do about 45 minutes or 40 minutes. Uh, but I think you'll get enough of this particular topic for you to find it helpful. I think in, in all the topics that I talk through, this is one of the ones that people over the years would say have benefited them the most, have helped change their life the most. Uh, I can't take credit for, I can take credit for the talk. The idea was first by David Pallison in the 90s when I was doing my doctoral work. And so I'm really grateful for David and, and for the benefit that's been. Just some introductory comments. Every good counselor is first a good counselee. Right? Every, if you're going to do well, and I was kind of hinting at that in our my answers, some of the one Kyle's, Kyle was asking, some of those questions, because... You, if you are unaware of your own heart, you make counseling much more difficult and potentially will sin against people, right? So it's something that you have to be aware of constantly is what's going on in me. That's why I have the subtitle, what do you bring to the table? I'll tell you what it is. You bring your own heart. See, when you start to talk to somebody, you are entering into their story but this is the difference between biblical counseling and the world system, isn't it? Think about the world system. The world system, it does not matter. And, and this would be true for Christian psychologists as well. If you go to a Christian psychologist, and I've been in moments where I've asked these questions and had the same answers, or if you go to a secular psychologist, they are not interested and they don't want you interested in their life whatsoever. If you say, well, tell me about your family, they're going to say, it's none of your business. Well, tell me about your marriage. You don't need to know about my marriage, right? We're here to talk about you. I've been to a Christian counselor, Christian psychologist, and integrationist, as I've been defining them, and I have talked to them, and in the process, I was there with the, somebody else who was there for an appointment. And so I was just wanting to get to know the man. I had no concern. I wasn't, he didn't even know who I was. I was just a person. And as a brother in Christ, talking to a brother in Christ, I started asking him personal questions. The stuff we would talk about all the time in biblical counseling, right? Just the normal everyday greeting. If we went downstairs, some of y'all did catch me get my dessert first. And so it was very, very good. If we were both robbing the dessert table at the same time, it's the same stuff I would talk to you about that I was talking to this guy about. And he was so uncomfortable. He would give me non-answers. Being a good counselor, I was persistent and would just ask a different kind of question. And eventually, he just shut me off, shut me down. Why? Because in the world system, the counselor only needs to know content. 
That is not true in biblical counseling. In the world system, you need content. That's some kind of source of information. They buy into some philosophy or a variety of philosophies. You need skill, right? So you need to be able to do something. And typically the setting is in some clinical, uh, some clinical setting. Well, in the church, those three things exist as well. The setting, that's the local church. That's the Romans 15, 14 we talked about last night. That's, all of these are there. So that's the setting. The content would be God's word. The skill would just be the one anothering, the having spiritual conversations. The component that is true about biblical counseling that doesn't even exist in all of those other forms is that you are a critical part of biblical counseling. I cannot take you places in marriage and live a double life because you're going to say, that's weird that you keep telling me these biblical principles, but when I watch you and your wife, you don't live them. You say this, but you do this. That doesn't work in biblical counseling. Instead, you lose your ministry. You lose your opportunity to talk because your words produce confusion about the Bible if your life isn't consistent with your words. Does that make sense? No other counseling system has that. You say, well, tell me one difference between biblical counseling and all other forms of counseling. If I only had to have one, that would be a major one. It wouldn't be the only one because there's also a biblical, the way you view sufficiency and uh, authority of the scriptures. But that is a critical one. So when we talk about self-counsel, that's an important area because you matter. What you, you are not there as a source of information. You're there as a brother. You're there as a sister, as a mentor, as an elder, right? You're there with a particular purpose and your life matters. All right, so I'm going to skip. I'm going to just mention in the introduction, it says write down three areas where God is pleased in your life and three areas where he desires to change you. Just, I'm not going to take time to do that. I'm going to move past it. But that is an important thing. Let me just make one observation. As a biblical counselor, you should be able to say where God is currently honored in your life. When I ask biblical counselors, hey, tell me three places where God is honored. Most of them don't know how to answer. Now, why is it important to know that? I think it's important to know that because you have to celebrate the good work God is doing. Right? We all are changed. I've already mentioned to you, I am a much more mercy-filled, empathetic person than what I used to be. I am grateful for that. Praise God that he has grown me. That's an area where I've taken time. And there are other issues of self-counsel. Dan and I were talking about this week. I used to not be able to sit in a ball game without losing my testimony. I would holler at the officials. It was horrible. My wife would be embarrassed. And I had to make it an issue of self-counsel. Now, just to say how good God is, I'll go ahead and finish the story, Dan. So just to say how good God is, I 
I love sports, so I be, I learned how to become an official. So I was at the scores table. Well, at the scores table, you can't say anything, right? So you get to watch the game. You're right on the edge of the action, but you can't talk. So that taught me that I can actually sit in a game and not say anything. So that was helpful. So I learned to not talk. Then after that, in God's kindness, I was invited to be color commentary on a radio. And I did that for 10 years. And I thought, this is nothing less than God's best. Because I still get to have my opinion. I can say it without hollering, and I get paid for it. I mean, what a deal. Uh, so sometimes when you do self-counsel, you really get it all at the end. So that was excellent. And I was actually, I called, did I call your whole career, Kyle? I probably called most of Kyle's games uh, when he was a basketball player, which he's, uh, he's very modest, but he's a very good player. That was a lot of fun. Okay, let's define self-counsel. It's the daily perpetual invitation to heart searching, heart repentance, and heart renewal. Right? It is, and if you'll notice the key word there is the heart. You might jot down Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. Even Psalm 139, 23 and 24. It's the goal of working at the heart level. Another definition, we could say it this way, the examination of your own heart. And when we say heart, what are we talking about? The thoughts, the motives, and the desires. And your behavior, right? Hebrews 4.12, the Bible says that it is for the discerning of what's going on on the inside of us. I mentioned Colossians 3 already, but it's taking the penetrating light of God's word and letting it carefully examine every part of our life. So self-counsel is essentially taking the Bible and applying it to you before you apply it to others. That is a critical discipline to learn. Why is it important? Let me just give you two reasons. First, because Paul clearly expected members of the church to examine his lifestyle. In the verses you have listed there, if you, we're not going to read them right now, but in each one of those passages, he says over and over, you know this, you know how I did this, you know how I did that. How would they know? Because he expected them to watch. Right? He saw that they were paying attention. Paul didn't just expect them to examine, but he expected to be the example. In the first Thessalonians 5, we've already talked about that, but let's think about Philippians 4, 8 through 9 for a minute. This is, uh, this is really a, an impactful thought that I appreciate. In verse 9, it says, The things which you learned and received and heard, and Saul. Now let's look at all four of those words for a moment. In order to learn something, you have to have a teacher. Something that teaches. In order to receive something, you have to have a giver. In order to hear something, you have to have someone speaking it. And in order to see something, you have to have somebody living it out in front of you. He says, those things you've learned and received and heard and saw, and then check the new two, next two words, in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I've been around Dave and Dan and Kyle. I've only met Jeff, but my guess is 
Y'all aren't standing up here every Sunday saying, hey, those things you have learned, received, heard, and seen in us, y'all go do that and God will be just satisfied with you. I don't say, do you say that, Dan? No, (laughs) I don't either. Well, why don't I say that? Man, that's a high standard. But Paul said it. In fact, let's go back one page, Philippians 3. Notice what he says there. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk. So what's he saying? Not just Paul, but the other people in the church. You have us for a pattern. You say, why is self-counsel important? Because we're supposed to be the pattern of godliness to the people that we're walking with. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. You just need to be a pattern. Part of the pattern is what? When you sin, you seek forgiveness. You say, you know what? I sinned too. And let's, this is what I did. Now, you don't have to be exhibitionistic and talk about yourself all the time. In fact, I don't suggest talking about yourself at all. But at the level of helpfulness, the counselees need to know, you know what, I am right in this boat with you. We're fishing out of the same side of the boat here. right? You and I are both, I use this illustration, we are both running a race. Now, I may have been on this track a lot longer, but until God pulls my number, I'm going to stay on this track. And I'm running beside you. right? And we're just going to keep doing this until the Lord calls us home. But it's not that I've arrived and that you're somewhere back here. No, we're in the same race. We're in the same life. I've just done it a little longer. Right? That's part of the broader process. Okay, number two. Notice then the foundation of self-counsel is the Word of God. The foundation of self-counsel is the Word of God. First Timothy 4. 6 through 11, we find three, I'm going to highlight three big ideas. First, he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. And in my notes here, I have good pastoral ministry. The reason I'm using those terms is because all biblical counselors are essentially doing pastoral ministry, right? You're functioning under the pastor, right? Of course, we would say a lady is not a pastor. But the work you're doing is you're coming alongside the pastor, following his example and helping him minister to the care to the souls of people. So good pastoral ministry, it hinges on the word. He says you're nourished in the words of faith. That's the scriptures. Right? He talks about good doctrine. That's understanding your theology. He says, which you have carefully followed. That means... He says, you've applied yourself, Timothy. So it begins with the word, verse 7, but reject profane and old wise fables. Good pastoral ministry rejects false teaching. If it's not truth, you don't share it. Ephesians 4 says to share the truth in love. And at the same time, he says, be aware of the deceitfulness of the world system around you. Profane literally means worldly. Fables talks about myths. 
Old wives' fables, which is the way most translations translate it, it's just a euphemism for essentially the way people believed stuff that was not true. And they did it in a way that was not helpful. The world system's full of those kinds of lies. And so we have to reject false teaching. We do that, the better we know the scriptures. Then notice, good pastoral ministry longs for godliness. Godliness here is the attitude or the lifestyle of being a believer. Exercise yourself. That word exercise is an athletic term. right? It's this disciplined duration of actually moving toward a goal. And he says to exercise yourself toward what? Toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. That's one of my favorite verses. I take that to heart. <clears throat> when people talk about, in fact, and we've not mentioned this at all. I think it's somewhere in your notes. But I blog regularly at kevincarson.com. There's, there's over a thousand articles there for you to peruse. It's all free. You can enjoy it as much as you want. Or you'll read a couple and say, I don't think so. But either way, you're welcome to go there. One of the articles I did was the Church of CrossFit. That's uh, Part of that was a bad heart toward exercise, but <laughs> it says bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So it's a disciplined lifestyle. A question I like to ask myself when I get to verses 7 and 8 is this. Is it possible that an athlete prepares for the Olympics and usually they've aged out by 25 or 30? Is it possible that one of those athletes have been better at discipline for the hope of some kind of bronze, silver, or gold than us who are supposed to exercise toward godliness with hope of eternal life. I just think that it's real easy for us to fail on this one. And so we need to exercise ourselves toward godliness. There's a little bit of effort. What's the look? Well, the look is Christ-likeness. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Your ministry's success and ability does not depend upon your age, physically or spiritually. There are two implications in this text. The first one is, hey, Timothy, it's inappropriate for someone to despise your youthfulness. I don't think that's the main emphasis of what he's saying. I think he's saying that as a just in passing. Timothy was young. No doubt, especially in the system that they were in, they'd grown up he had Paul of course was a Jew. The synagogues, they what? They really highlighted age and wisdom of age. So no doubt, Timothy being young and he was doing the work of Paul in these various churches, I'm sure he received criticism at times. Right, this church has such a young, good-looking pastor. 
He keeps it under all those whiskers for a reason. I knew him pre-beard. It would be wrong for someone to despise Kyle's youth. I first started teaching in a seminary at 25. There were people in the seminary twice and three times my age. Sometimes they didn't appreciate that. Now, I could have stood up and opened the Bible and says, it is wrong for you to despise my youth. Okay. But that's not the heart of this text. The heart is the second part of this verse. It may be wrong for them to despise your youth, but your responsibility isn't whether or not they despise. Your responsibility is to live like Jesus. Right? That's the emphasis of the text. But you be an example. You should live in such a way that no one would have any reason to despise your youth, Timothy. That's true for all of us. Now, how does he give, what examples does he give? Well, he says, you need to be example in word, that is, in what you say. In conduct, that is, in what you do. In love. That relates to who you serve. In, in faith, that relates to how you live. And in purity, that relates to in what you want. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to be like Jesus in what you say and what you do and what you serve and how you live and in what you want. That's pretty thorough. That's a lot like Jesus. But that's the standard. And it needs to be the standard for those of us who are handling the Word of God as we try to help people. Notice the next verse. Your handling of of personal ministry opportunities reflects your understanding of your call. Verse 13 says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. I think with to reading, I would say that you ought to be like a scratch and sniff, right? Every time someone's around you and they get close, they ought to be hearing a text. If someone comes to you for advice, you they ought to walk away and say, you know, I don't know if I've ever asked him a question where he didn't tell me a Bible verse. I heard a biblical counselor say in a national conference, I just keep my Bible in the desk drawer unless they ask about it. And I walked away, it was a dear friend of mine, and I walked away and said, I'm not sure he's a biblical counselor. We don't keep the Bible, right? Biblical counselor, counselor's not the key word. Biblical is. The Bible has the authority. The Bible has the wisdom, not us. So we give the Bible, unashamedly so. Now we're not, right, we don't dispense the word, we minister the word, but it must start with the Bible, So give attention to reading. What's exhortation and doctrine? Doctrine would be what does it mean? Exhortation would be how does it apply? Now, I was overwhelmed with gratitude when Kyle said a few minutes ago in the Q&A time, when he said, I went into this guy's class and it blew my mind because he would stand up and read a text, explain the text, And apply the text. It makes me cry to think about it. 
because that's what I want to do. Because I think this verse says that's what we're supposed to do. You're not going to go wrong, friends, if you stick with the word. There's a professor used to talk about Shorty. The, is it Shorty? What's the parrot's name, Kyle? Do you know? I can't think of it. Right? But it's his parrot. And what his parrot always said is, read the Bible. <laughs> I agree. Read the Bible. Start with the text. Explain the text. Apply the text. If you do that, you'll serve people well. But you have to do that in your own life as well. Your diligence is crucial to your spiritual giftedness, which is what 14 emphasizes. What's the balance? Well, the balance is being an ambassador. Verses 15 and 16, it says, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. What does it mean to meditate on these things? It means to give yourself entirely to it, right? You must take your calling seriously. Go all in. Learn the word. It's what we were talking about last night. What's your honey? What are you longing for? What do you delight in? Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. So take your calling seriously. Notice the next statement. Personal ministry always starts with an inner look in verse 16. He says, take heed to yourself and then your doctrine. Now, without looking at the text, does anybody know the first five verses of chapter 4? What's he dealing with? You don't have to say it out loud. He's dealing with heresy, apostasy. You would expect him in verse 16 to say to Timothy, what? Timothy, take care of your doctrine first. Why? Because there's heresy. That's not what he says. He says, take heed to yourself. Had a young pastor's wife call me, just beside herself. My wife and I went to visit her. She was able to choke out the words. I just got back from my doctor and he told me that I have um, a disease, sexually transmitted disease. She said, I told my doctor, there is absolutely 100% no way possible I have an STD. He says, oh, there is. You're, you had to get it from your husband. Young mother, three kids. She said, Pastor Kevin, would you please go and talk to my husband? I called him. I met him at a coffee shop. And I looked across the table and I said, you know the news I just heard from your wife? She has an STD. I wonder how she got that. He told me as a pastor... I've done it God's way, and I didn't get what I wanted. I want to do it my way. Now, friends, had I called for lunch with him or to have coffee with him and said, you know what, I'm really struggling understanding the Trinity. Can you explain it? He could talk for 30 minutes. He could talk about the Lapsarian theories. He could talk about 
the hypostatic union? What does kenosis mean? Give me your best shot at eschatology. He could have worked through every one of those things. He had been a graduate of my program. I knew what he had, and I had heard him walk through all those things in our doctrinal exam. His problem wasn't his theology. His problem was his heart. And in this text, Paul says to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. It's not that doctrine's unimportant, but your character is important. And we don't do it once. He says, and continue in them. I've often said, it would, I would pay everything I have, everything I own, if I could make one payment to the church and would be forever sanctified. It'd be worth every dime I had. But that isn't the way it works. I have to do it every day. Continue in it. And then what will happen? In doing this, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. We've talked a lot about Bill Pyatt, and he is a great man, a godly man. He would be so embarrassed. But this is what I know about Bill Pyatt. He shared with me this document years ago, and it floats around on our counseling desk. And it says, if I cross the line, and there are 27 statements, if I sin in a way that would question the integrity of my ministry, there are 27 things that we've written down that would be impacted by it. And this text is one of the things that we have to know. Your choices impact people around you, always. Again, I said, what's the difference between biblical counseling? Who cares if your psychologist commits adultery? Somebody cares, but the clients don't. But if you commit adultery, it impacts people. If you deconstruct your faith, it impacts people. If you walk away from the church, it impacts people. So you have to take heed to your own heart. What you do for your vocation is your secondary job. You first are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we talked about that earlier. Being like Christ or an ambassador means three things. We need to think like Christ, we need to feel like Christ, and we need to act like Christ. As an ambassador... You represent someone else. You don't get to choose your words. You have to represent his words. You don't get to choose your agenda. You have to represent his agenda. You don't choose whether or not you're going to work on a particular day. No, you do what you've been asked to do. Why? Because you're a faithful ambassador. You give up your own goals and priorities in order to live for somebody else. I think about that second one where you feel like Christ, where you have emotions and thinks, thoughts, and you handle yourself like Christ. I remember 
This one dear lady, she came to me for counseling, and her husband, as much as we did, we could not save their marriage. Her children were three and five. She had no idea how to tell them that she and her husband were getting a divorce. And so she asked me, she said, Pastor, would you please, she started as a counselee, she became a member of the church. She said, Pastor, would you please tell my kids, help them understand what's going on. I put one on both knees and tried to explain what was going on with mom and dad. I've loved that family for years. And as they were little, her husband, he was in and out of church off and on. But at one particular time, she and he had been getting along and he said to her, hey, what are you getting for the kids? I do not know if he misunderstood she was giving him ideas or if she was giving him what she had purchased. But on Christmas Eve, they went to her family's, or hence his house, and everything they opened is what she had for Christmas morning. Every gift that they received, they were going to get a duplicate the next day. She called me that Christmas Eve. I was at Walmart. It was a Sunday. They were going to close at 6. It was like 5.45, and she called me, and she said, Pastor, I'm just trying to to respond right. What is God trying to teach me? The kids just opened up everything that we were going to, I have for them tomorrow under the tree. They just opened it up at their dad's house. She was devastated. Little kids. I remember saying, Kelly and I are here. We'll just walk through aisles, tell you what we see. We'll buy everything we need to. I was so angry. To my core, I was angry. I would have loved to have seen him. And my heart was burning with anger. And she could hear it. And it's when the counselee becomes the counselor. She said, Pastor Kevin, you've taught me. God is trying to show me something good in this situation. And I just need to be faithful to it. And I kept thinking, I'm the one that needs to hear that. Because I'm not the faithful ambassador. Our counselees and our counselors, we work together to become like Christ. Right? We strive. And being an ambassador means it impacts us in every way. What's the warning? We've already dealt with this text, but it's the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. We need daily reminders from those around us in order that we might live godly. We've already talked about this. The fact that there's a warning here emphasizes the possibility. In any moment, we're imminently entrappable. And as Matthew 7 says, it all starts with a look at your own eye first. He says, make sure you deal with your heart before you deal with somebody else's heart. Make sure you check yourself. So what's the process of self-counsel? Well, the process is this. Until Christ comes, purify yourself. 1 John chapter 3 says, 
And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In life, we want to work toward sanctification. Let me suggest several steps. This is the process. And I'm just going to be able to read over these briefly because of our time. Number one, choose a problem to deal with. Let me just say it this way. If you can't answer the question of where God is trying to change you right now, then you're probably not being changed. You do not change in abstention. You don't change without effort. But just choose one. Because if you're choosing more than one at a time to work on, you won't have enough energy to do them. Right? Pick one at a time. The atonement has purchased God's patience with your sanctification. So just work in an area at a time. Number two, in your own thinking, describe it. Right? What does sin look like? Most of us can describe it pretty easily in lots of detail. I have some questions there for you. Number three, what are your reasons to choose to deal with this particular problem right now? That question is a motivation question. Right? If your wife says, you do that one more time and you'll sleep on the couch for the rest of the year. Okay, I'm motivated to change. Right? I'll do something about that. If the doctor says, if you don't change your eating, you're going to be a diabetic. Okay, I'm going to work on that. So when you're talking about sanctification, the goal is, well, why do I need to work on this? It might be something like, so I can be a better testimony to my grandchildren. Or because this has been an issue in my life for the last 10 years, it needs to go. It's time. Right? There's some reason. Number four, determine your understanding of the problem biblically. Notice there's three categories here. There's three categories that deal with the problem. Often we refer to that as put off. There are three, three things that deal with the put on. What's the solution? And then there are three or more passages that speak to grace and the power of the Spirit. That is for your encouragement. Number five, what does meaningful headway in this area look like? Notice, underline or circle, be specific and concrete. Most people think of change in the fuzzy. Let me tell you about the number two. When I say, tell me about your sin, let me just give you a quick illustration. If, if I were to tell you, describe your sin, it's going to be like one of, one of our TVs at the house, right? It's, it's crazy. We've never spent money on technology, but someone... When we were first moving into our neighborhood, this was several years ago, they, they liked our stuff more than we did. And so they stole everything. We hadn't even moved into the house yet. They stole it all. All of our electronics. And it was the same time there was a hurricane in New York, so my insurance company could care less because they had a, big, a bunch of policy claims in New York. So I got on the phone, and my wife made this list. We had a TV. Okay, we had a video camera, okay, right? That was the list. We didn't know what we had. So I'm talking to the insurance agent, and he said, so what did you have? I said, we had a TV. How big was it? I said, it was as big as our table. Well, go measure that. We had one of those real big, old, thick 
flat screen TVs that weighed had to weigh two tons, right? It was miserable to watch, but it was big. So I measured the table. I said, it was this wide. He said, okay, that's the way we handled all of it. In one phone call, he said, I'll send you an email and you agree or don't agree. They sent thousands. It was crazy the amount of money we got out of it. And we had just junk. So we were grateful for it. But because of that, my kids, they watch TV in ways I never watched it. Right? It's clear. It's beautiful. (laughs) Right? Surround sound. It's fantastic. It's an amazing thing. Well, in number two, that's the way you can talk about your sin. You know the smell. You know the taste. You know the thoughts. Some of you could mention your sin, and there may be other people here because of their own ability to see it and understand their sin, that they begin to sweat because that's the way sin is. But you get to number five, what does meaningful headway get, and you lose it. Right? My kids watched incredible televisions. Well, when I was a kid, we had in the corner this box TV. My uncle found it in his garage when he bought this house, so it had some kind of ring on the inside. We're not sure what it was. It was probably mold or something, but it was a ring, so it kind of looked like you watched TV through a wreath, right? So (laughs) it had tubes in it. Well, we were so poor. I was a pastor's kid. We were so poor that when the color tube went out, pardon me, when the the, uh, volume tubes went out, the audio tubes, We couldn't afford to get it fixed. Well, our assistant pastor was driving through town, and we were from Kentucky, and people kind of put stuff out where you can see it. And and if it's close enough to the road, they're inviting you to take it. So (laughs) he called, and he said, hey, Brother Marvin, we found this TV. Well, get it then. Okay, so he gets the TV, and would you believe when he brought it in, it was identical model (laughs) to our TV. So we plugged that baby in. And the audio tubes worked, but the video didn't. So what did we do? We took that baby and put it right on the top. And as long as they were on the same channel, you could hear it and see it. Fantastic. We were in high cotton, that is for sure. Friends, that's as bad as it is sometimes when we talk about what do you put on. We have 4K surround sound. I understand being a sinner. What does godliness look like? Oh, maybe I ought to love her more. If, you, if your goal is love her more, you might as well mail it in. That's not clear enough. It's not specific enough. right? You got to get it where you say, this is what godliness looks like. Most of it's at the wisdom level, but still you have to be committed to change. Number six, get some accountability partners. Men, I encourage you to have men. Ladies, I encourage you to have ladies. Use your spouse as a general accountability partner, not a specific accountability partner for most issues. That's just my own wisdom. There's not a Bible verse for that. Number seven, keep a log or journal to track your progress. If you follow those seven steps, you'll be a long way toward good self-counsel. Let's wrap up with these two things. There are questions here for your consideration. Here's the first question. 
first two questions. What does God want to change in your life? Where is God working? Write down two things for me. First, this is the insight level. This is the insight level. The second thing you might want to write down here is that no answers here implies, right? Without an answer here, it implies that you're probably not changing. Christ-likeness is upstream. Christ-likeness is uphill. If you don't do something and put some kind of effort in it, you won't become like Christ. Here's number two. What are you doing about it? Now, this is, you can write this down, the first thing, this is the change level. And write this down for me. This is going to be one of the most insightful things I've said all day. So I'll have you write this down. I'll give it to you twice so you get it. Change does not take place. I'll start it over so you can get it. Change does not take place until change takes place. Change does not take place until change takes place. Get that written down and then give me your attention for just one moment. Here's the problem. Most of us in this room are professionals at insight. We hear a sermon. We read a blog from a good Christian source. We read a devotional Bible. We spend time in a life group. And we say, oh, wow, I need a change there. In some of our churches, you may even come forward and pray. But unless you do something, All you've been is insightful. You've not changed. You can't confuse insight for change. Or you'll never change. You'll just become a hypocrite. Lord, I pray that you would give us that kind of wisdom. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Please be glorified in our effort to live for you. Thank you that you're patient. Thank you that you work in us even on the days that we're not interested. And thank you there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to go the long road with us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.